The Perfect Ten with Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time radio award winner. Yeah, welcome to part two with legendary Sydney DJ Stephen Ferris. He was also the lead singer of Flotsam Jetsam in the 1980s, appearing on Countdown. start episode two with a stark realisation. The day that Stephen heard crowded house, Don't Dream It's Over, and saw the making of the film clip. It was that moment that he realised the writing was on the wall for his own band. I like to be brutally honest about what you've done and what you haven't done. At the time I couldn't face failure, <laughs> but um, Alex Press was the director Years later, of iRobot with Will Smith and The Crow, um, you know, he's a very you know, respected and well-known um, director. At the time, he'd just come out of film school with a group called Meaningful Eye Contact, and he was um, in the market for making pop videos. We actually sort of said no at first time around because we weren't sure about what they were going to do. But then he had some success with Excess, Kiss the Dirt, and we said, great. And the company said, look, they're willing to go, ready to go. It was a hands-on affair. And one day he said, look, we need to talk about what, you, what we're going to do. Come to the edit suite. I'm doing a video clip. I'm going all night because it's cheaper, so come in at nine o'clock in the morning when we're finishing up. I walk in the door and he says, yeah, come on in, you know. And he was laying down the crockery that was being broken. It was being smashed on a green screen. You know, if everybody knows Star Wars knows a green screen. Uh, for the Crowded House song, Don't Dream It's Over. And he was doing it over and over again, trying to get it right. And I sat down here in the song. I thought, my, I thought, shit, that's a good song. You know, that song will be huge. And we've never written a song as good as that. <laughs> that was my first realisation that we needed to really sharpen up the songwriting skills, you know. Went to number one? Number one in America, you know. The biggest hit ever, you know. It's an incredible song. We all know that. Someone said to me once that if you write one hit song, you will be set for life because of royalties. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Anyone that's gone number one in America has been set for life. It's, It's, you know, buy your house and all the rest of it. It's incredible, isn't it? You know, uh, and now he's with Fleetwood Mac. It's, it's it's the most bizarre career. But he, you know, I mean, he is a genuinely a great songwriter, and they're few and far between. And we never quite got there. <laughs> and you would have been around when they first came across from NZ Split Ends. Yeah, I saw the first show um, at a, a venue in this in George Street called the Tivoli. And they performed as the Malanes. That was their first name. Um, and we all went along because we knew there was a bit of hype about them. But they weren't big yet. They were just like, oh, a new band from Neil Finn. And um, obviously the Malanes didn't sit well. But you know, even then you could tell that they had this, let's just play with the tempos down a bit. We can bring the melodies forward. Nobody was really pushing melody. And particularly sweet pop melody. You know, this was the time of you know, pub rock, you know, was big and loud and thrashy, you know. <laughs> Is that when they were doing Late Last Night? Was that one of their first singles? I can't remember exactly the tunes. I just remember them being more folky, you know, a little bit more sort of ballad-orientated, like, you know, showing off some of their Irish roots, you know, I suppose. Tell me about the breakup of your band. Was it amicable? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that there, was, there were so many of us, all with different interests. Um, some had families, some, you know, it was financial. We went to Adelaide to play two nights at a venue and we didn't get paid. <laughs> we, we had to literally run out of our hotel room and jump on the plane because we had no cash. We couldn't pay for anything. It was like we're supposed to get paid on the night and we thought, that's it. You know, end of story. We've got to do something different. This is not working. So now I look back, I think those that persevere are successful. Paul Kelly went through a lot of ups and downs. He just stuck at it. I think you've got to stick at things, and we didn't, to my regret. I've got to say, you often wonder what happens to band members, uh, particularly the guys that aren't songwriters and where they go when their band dissolves. But you said all your brothers have remained in the industry that they love. Tell us more. Yeah, well, um, my brother John's been in the music industry. He, he's 
Ministry of Sound, Warner's, Sony, all these companies, and he does what they call sync licensing. You know, we have music for film, music for ads, etc., as well as compilations, as well as still DJing. Uh, um, the brother Pee Wee production, uh, he does work for you know, fireworks and Chinese New Year and those sort of big events, and still DJs. My brother Nick was in the band. He moved from music though into graphic uh, work, into into design and graphic work. I tell you what, though, being um, a DJ as a career is a tough one. People think it's easy, but you look at, you know, the Avicii story, there's a lot of stress, a lot of travel, lack of sleep, you're around alcohol, you know, it's um, it's not that easy. Not that It's not as much fun as you think it is. Well, that's where I want to go next. You've worked in major cities around the world. Tell us more and tell us how those opportunities came about. I think that you you have to stay true to what you do. And what I've always done is I, I'm, a, I'm not a populist so much as I like to make people happy. I'm not in it to look after myself. I think that you have to be a lead. You have to guide people with what your choices are. But I still like to feel that they walk away with a smile on their face. So, for example, I worked at a club called Cuba in Sydney, and I used to do the very, very late shift. We're talking very, very late. And I do remember the last song of the night is always the one that when people are really happy drunk, will walk out the door singing. You know. So if I play a Frank Sinatra song at the end of the night, that's the one that they'll be singing when they walk out the door. So... And I feel like it's a job done, you know, if they got to that point. Generally speaking, people trust you, you know. It's, it's word of mouth in the end. Like, I, I did clubs for years and years and years, two decades. Um, all the clubs in Sydney, every hotel, every bar, every club I did. And then there was a guy called um, David Grant who was became the biggest event producer in Sydney. He did all the, the contro balls and then he did all the functions for, for um, fashion weeks and um, you know Christmas parties for big companies. He was very successful at breaking all the rules. First person to put a, an event or a band on a, on a lake. He did the, the gold ball where he put it over Kipax Lake you know, across the road from um, the football stadium. Anyway, he was one that said to me, we need you for an, an, after, an after TV awards night. So I went on to do the Logie Awards and all these sort of things and I thought to myself, oh, this is interesting. I actually can be somebody who gets to program particular events with particular themes and occasions. That leads you into, of course, personal parties. You know, people have Christmas parties or, you know, birthday parties or whatever. But I have probably done everything, including a wake. That led into always radio. I've always done radio. So I was on Triple J for 80s and 90s. And then Kiss FM in Melbourne, Rhythm FM in Sydney, Bondi FM. And then for the 15 years this year, FBI in Sydney. Uh, that was a three-day week, now it's a two-day week because I work at Vivid. How has it changed? How has technology changed what you do in three decades? It's a good question. Um, I used to take as many records as I could take in a night, and that would be two big bags, and that would give you perhaps um, enough music for the five hours and a bit more, but not much more. So you had to play what you had. There was no, oh, I think I'll change my mind. And I'll, you, you, know, you used to play the same set in a week. You know, because they were the records that were popular and that you love, and you play some old ones, but you have some new ones. Now, of course, I can take 30,000 songs with me every night, and I sit there going, what am I going to play? I can play whatever I want. I look at the crowd, I go, it's, it's confusion in the end. Too much choice, and that's not a great thing always, where sometimes when you know what you've got and what you want to play, having a, a limited choice is a good thing sometimes, I think. Uh, but Jamison Street was one of those classic big room, um, 1,500 people full, and the DJ booth was above the dance floor, so you look like God you know, right up there, um, had an intercom, you know, I used to get the boss to ring me and say, mate, David Bowie's coming in, you know, right, or I'm ready for him, you know, or he'd go, George Michael's in tonight and he wants to DJ, will you let him in? I said, all right, he can DJ, you know. George Michael comes up with an army of women following him, you know, gets in there, has no idea what to do. <laughs> you know, he tries to put all these records together. I said, George, that's too fast for that record. They won't, they won't mix together. And then he'd say, well, you choose and I'll muck around, you know. So, you know, Grace Jones had a birthday party there and it was one of those sort of nights, you know. And every night at midnight, they used to drop 
what was then the little cut-off bits from tally-ho uh, rolly papers, and they used to let them drop, and they looked like snow. What about music itself in terms of creativity, accessibility? You just mentioned about uh, having access to 30,000 songs. Uh, the way samples have been used? I'm going to try and not sound like an old narc, but um, I still love music played by musicians live, you know? I like to see the, the machine that is all those people on the moving parts and the way it's a little flexible, you know, because there are layers there. You don't know what you're going to hear each time, and there's depth to it. I mean, when I, my favourite producer is Quincy Jones, and, when, and Quincy worked with Dinah Washington, Ray Charles, Frank Sinatra, before he, George Benson and Michael Jackson and Patty Austin and, um, you know, the Brothers Johnson, um, all those sort of disco acts or soul acts. But you can listen to one of his tracks... 40 years after it was made, and you still go, whoa, what's, what's, that doesn't sound the same now, because everybody uses the same programming, you know, the same machines, the same sort of sounds, and they all copy each other, and it's, a lot of the big hits are made by a dozen people, you know, no more around the world. It's so superficial, it's so flat in your face that you, once you hear it, you go, I know what that's going to sound like, I know exactly what that's, there's, that, there's no surprises, you know. God forbid a guitar solo or a, or a saxophone solo, you know what I mean? And the, the notion of using string sections, of course, it's too expensive. The players don't exist like that anymore. It's, 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 it's gone, obviously. You know, it's it's computer-driven. That does... The reduction of, of musical skills does disappoint me immensely. That doesn't mean that great tracks aren't being made, but that really does disappoint me, you know? Because I'd rather hear them play every time. That is legendary DJ Stephen Ferris. He's got that many great stories, so we're definitely coming back for a part three. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Special shout-out to our listeners in Mykonos in the gorgeous Greek islands, and we'll catch you next time. The Perfect Ten.